in the ordinary day-to-day living, uh, mundane events that take place throughout your week, sometimes we can forget the reality, the spiritual realities around us of what's going on. So the farmer goes out and tends his field and works day after day and he doesn't see much growth and it just all seems so ordinary, like is anything happening with those plants? And yet the reality is, yes, something is happening. And gradually, over time, he will see the reality come to fruition. And it's the same way as we come to our Bible reading from week to week, and as we come to the reading and the preaching of God's Word, as we come to this gathering week after week, it may seem also ordinary. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll miss the spiritual realities of what's going on when we do this. When we come together and consider the glories of Christ. When His Word, the very Word of God, is read and proclaimed, God is working by His Spirit among us. God is here among us by the power of His Spirit. Let's not lose sight of that reality this morning. Our Father, we pray that You would help us to see the spiritual realities all around us. And we pray that as Your Word is proclaimed now, You would hide me behind yourself, that you would speak to us, uh, that by the power of your spirit and your word accurately proclaimed, you would shape us into a people for your own glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's reported in the autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi that during his student days, he read the gospels and read some of the teachings of Jesus and had some interest in those things. And so perhaps he believed that in Jesus he could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. So one Sunday he decided to attend a church and to talk with the minister about what being a Christian was all about. But when he entered the sanctuary, he says that the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go worship with his own people. So Gandhi left the church and never returned, seeing that Christians had caste systems just like Hinduism. Now, of course, Gandhi saw Christ in a certain way and treated Christ's claims in a certain way. I'm sure, you know, many times people make excuses for why they don't become Christians when the heart of the matter is, who do you say that Christ is? And yet at the same time, I can't help but Think about how much damage the church has done in how we treat people who come into our gatherings or how we treat people in our everyday lives. Because this sort of thing, I'm sure, happens today. It may happen just as explicitly and as, you know, in such an ugly manner as it did then with Gandhi. And yet, in other ways, it might be a little more subtle. I have heard reports of, you may probably you have too, of people, uh, maybe a guest speaker, uh, dressing up as a homeless person, seeing how he's treated as people walk into the doors of the church. But some more subtle ways that this might happen might be as simple as, simple as a sideways glance to someone who doesn't look quite like us. Or the way that we might cater to certain visitors or guests because of the way they look. But from James, one thing is clear. 
This is not how things ought to be with Christians. It's actually opposed to the way God is working in the world. And it is contradictory to the very faith that we say that we hold to. So look at our passage and follow along with me as I read it. James chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and in fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom you belong? In this passage, James condemns favoritism towards the rich as contradictory to the faith, to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We are not to play favorites based on outward appearance or societal prestige. So the main point of this passage, this main command in verse 1, do not show partiality as you hold to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The context of our passage, you'll remember, is that we are to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. In other words, if you hear the word, but it doesn't translate into a life lived for the glory of God and obedience to God, then maybe you haven't really heard as much as you thought you heard. The underlying truth James has been driving home over and over again is that when God plants the message of Christ in someone's hearts, they are changed. This is what we call regeneration or the new birth. When we receive the gospel, when we receive Christ as crucified for our sins and risen from the dead, we're changed forever. And in these verses, James is showing us practically how that works itself out in this specific example in regards to how we view and treat other people. The gospel changes how we view other people. And it changes how we treat other people. The gospel changes how we view and treat other people. It completely changes our value systems when it comes to evaluating others. We no longer evaluate people based on their outward appearance or according to worldly measures. Rather, the gospel gives us new lenses through which we see others. We see them now as those made in the image of God, reflecting His own glory as valuable to God. We see those who belong to Christ through faith as brothers and sisters and heirs of the kingdom of God, regardless of their worldly means or appearance. So let's walk through this passage and see how James goes about his argument. We see the main command in verse 1. We must not show favoritism. The ESV says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he goes on in verses 2 through 4 to give this hypothetical situation. Now you have to wonder exactly how hypothetical this is because it seems like there's something going on in uh, the life of his readers. Verse 4, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Or verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor. So James seems like he's making it awfully personal if it's just a hypothetical situation. But take a look at the circumstance that he gives. Suppose two men come into the assembly. One is dressed to the nines. He walks in the room and everybody looks his way. He has dazzling jewelry and fine clothes. He's marked by prestige. The other man, however, is dressed in shabby clothes or filthy old clothes. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo says it's the image of the typical homeless person in our day dressed in mismatched, stained, and smelly rags. Now we can imagine perhaps what it might look like if this were the case in our gathering here today. And we should ask ourselves, how would we respond in that situation? One comes in and he's in stylish clothes. He looks and smells good. There's a confidence about him. And the other man comes in and he's in shabby clothes. He looks a little rough around the edges. He keeps to himself. How do we respond? And we shouldn't be so quick to answer how we'd respond. Because you'll probably give yourself the benefit of the doubt. But before considering what action you would take or how you would respond in your behavior, consider what would go through your mind. What would be the response be in your mind? What would you think of each of these persons? Because we know that God wants to change not simply our outward behaviors. He wants to change who we are from the very core, right? He wants to change our our hearts and our minds and our motives and our intentions. It's possible to modify our behavior in this respect and how we treat other people and yet still harbor deep feelings of contempt for those that we meet. The intention here is more than you should just simply change your behavior. It's more like you need to change your heart. You need a new vision. You need a new value system. And then that will translate into the behavior of treating others with respect and honor regardless of what they look like. In the hypothetical case James presents, the believers in the gathering pay special attention to the rich man. They gaze at him. They're dazzled by his appearance. They go out of their way to make sure he gets the attention that he needs. And all along, the poor man is treated with contempt. Now, why might they do that? Why might we be tempted to do that? Well, we might think someone of this caliber is expecting to be treated in a certain kind of way. You never know how much he might be able to give to the Lord's work. We're all happy for people to give to the Lord's work and to our church. So we need to bless him. And if he feels well taken care of, if he feels appreciated, he might just see fit to bless us too. But of the poor man, we might wrongly think he really doesn't expect much attention. He's used to be being treated in a certain way. He'll probably just be thankful for whatever attention he gets at all. Now, it's clear to see how this sort of behavior 
ends up being selfish and ugly. Do we treat others a certain way simply based on whether or not they can do something for us? Perhaps, yes, we do. I'll pamper the one who can do something for me. But if you've got nothing to give me, nothing to offer, then we can really offer little to you. And of course, that sounds nothing like the work and character of Christ. Rather, James says, when you do that, you have discriminated and become judges with evil thoughts. Evil thoughts. So we have the command in verse 1, the hypothetical situation in verses 2 through 4, and then in verses 5 through 7, he shows how unbelievably foolish it is to show favoritism for those who belong to Christ. One reason he gives is because it, it contradicts God's own purposes and actions towards the poor. And the other reason he gives is because it's the rich who persecute the poor and actually blaspheme the name of God himself, the noble name of the Lord that you worship. Why would you show defer- deferential preference to those who do that? And actually, James's argument, you'll see, continues on in verse, verses 8 and following as he discusses how favoritism goes against the royal law itself. Love your neighbor as yourself. But we'll get to that next week. But having looked at the main point and theme of this passage, I want to draw out for us three reasons why we cannot show favoritism while calling ourselves Christians. These Three reasons we can't show favoritism based on outward appearance and still call ourselves those who belong to Jesus Christ. First, showing favoritism to the rich places one in opposition to God. Showing favoritism to the rich places one in opposition to the purpose of God. This is what James says in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. By this he wants to highlight, he wants to emphasize what he's about to say. Listen to this. Has not God chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Now James puts this in the form of a question, but it's clear he means it more as a statement than a question. And not only is he making a statement, he's making a statement which he's sure his readers will agree with. Yes, yes, he has. God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. So what do we make of this statement in the form of a question? Is James guilty of reverse discrimination? Is he guilty of giving favoritism to the poor over and against the rich? And to these two questions I offer Two answers. First, James is not saying that all poor people are accepted by God and heirs of his kingdom. This is not a liberation theology of all those who are poor will inherit salvation. He makes it clear that it is those who are rich in faith and it's those who love God who inherit his kingdom. And on the other hand, he's not saying that no rich people can be saved. But for James, in his particular context, the poor are those poor believers that he's familiar with, that are undergoing persecution, that are being oppressed, who are rich in faith and love God. And the rich in James's context are those rich and ruthless unbelievers who oppress the marginalized. But second, I want to answer that James is showing a special concern for the poor 
which accurately reflects God's own special concern for the poor. So yes, we ought to treat everyone with honor and respect and love, regardless of whether they are rich or poor, regardless of what they look like, regardless of societal prestige or outward appearance. But there also ought to be a special concern given to the poor of this world. Because James' statement stands, God has chosen the poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Consider even Paul's words as he addresses the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us. Wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. If we look throughout the scope of human history and time and around the world, we can't help but notice God has in large, a large manner called to himself those who are poor in the world. It's not that God hasn't called rich people to himself. There's Zacchaeus. Jesus went to his house and Zacchaeus had a huge change of heart and repentance and faith in Christ. And there's Joseph from Arimathea, who it seems too was a believer. But isn't it the case that Christians throughout history and throughout the world have in large measure been poor? That God has chosen to build His kingdom on the marginalized, on the weak, on those things that seem foolish to the world? Now usually, a baseball player will take the best bat he can find up to the plate with him. He'll get the one that has the most bounce. It will give him the the most benefits. When he swings the bat, he wants it to go as far as he can, and he wants every advantage he can take. Some even cheat and cork their bats so that they can hit it further to get an extra advantage, hopefully hitting the ball out of the park. But imagine a baseball player who took... The weakest, the tiniest, the cheapest bat up to the plate with him and knocked it out of the park every single time. What would that show? Would it not show the power rested not in the bat, but in the batter himself? And in large part, God has chosen the poor, the weak, those of no account, so that the power of his kingdom might not rest in wealth or power or prestige, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. To paraphrase Paul, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom and Americans yearn for riches. But we preach Christ crucified for sinners. A stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to Gentiles and weakness to Americans. But to those whom God has called the Jews and Greeks and Americans, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God and the riches of God. 
to show favoritism to the rich and to treat the poor with contempt is to oppose God himself and his purposes for his kingdom. It is an attempt to choose loyalty to both the Lord and to the world. Favoritism is evidence of a divided heart. Second, notice that showing favoritism to the rich gives Christ's glory to another. Showing favoritism to the rich gives the glory that belongs to Christ alone to another. Now, this is not as explicit, but it's still there. James says in verse 1, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Jesus is the Lord of glory, the Master, the King of all glory. All glory belongs to Christ. It refers to Jesus as the dazzling one, the high and exalted one, the one to whom all glory and honor and respect and devotion is due. And when we give undue honor or respect, when we show favoritism because of the way one looks or because of the prestige he has, we are stealing away the glory of Christ and giving it to one of his created beings. James's readers are being lured away by the glitter of riches. And he wants to remind them that all glory belongs to Christ and Christ alone. So God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. The first part of our vision statement is that we exist to love God's glory. This is what we are all about. This is what we want to do in every aspect of our life as a church. Loving God's glory. So we gather together each week not to exult in the musicians. Not to revel in the glory of those who serve or the one who preaches. Not to revel in the glory of the one who prays. We gather here week in, week out, and we try to make everything revolve around Christ crucified for sinners and risen from the dead because we want to love God's glory and especially as it has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ our Savior. And loving God's glory will keep us from making an idol of riches or exalting someone because of their outward appearance of wealth. So let's take this as an encouragement to make much of Christ's glory. To love God's glory. Aim to magnify His glory in your affections and you won't be lured by lesser glories. I love how John Piper says we are to magnify the glory of God. And that doesn't mean magnifying it as as in using a microscope to see something small really clearly. Rather, it means taking a telescope And looking at the stars. And what you're doing there is you're not making something bigger. You are more clearly seeing the bigness, the greatness that is already there. We need to aim to magnify the glory of God in the person and work of Christ. Do you love God's glory? Do you make much of Christ and His glory? Or have you been lured away from the glory of Christ for the lesser glories of this world? Are you swayed by riches and wealth? Do you yearn to have what others have? 
Are you impressed by the way someone looks? Make much of the glory of Christ. And we won't be lured in by lesser glories. We won't give undue glory to one and show favoritism against the other. So let me repeat what we've seen so far. Why is showing favoritism so wrong for Christians? One, because we do so, when we do so, we put ourselves in opposition to God Himself, who honors the poor. When we do so, we give Christ's glory to another. And third, we cannot show favoritism because showing favoritism to the rich betrays one's love for Christ Himself. Showing favoritism betrays one's love for Christ himself. So let me build my argument here. And I think I can do so simply from uh, a couple of scriptures, one being Philippians chapter 2. Listen to Paul's description of Christ. Jesus Christ, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And listen to, again, the prophet Isaiah's description of the Messiah who was to come. This too refers to Christ. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, He was despised. And we held Him in low esteem. Do you see my point? To despise the poor will put us in a position of despising the very one we say we love. Was not Christ poor for our sake? He willingly received the mockery. He was a king with a crown of thorns and a reed for a staff. He was stripped and beaten and a wooden cross became his throne and he was nailed to it hands and feet. And Isaiah says, once again, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is our king. This is the one that we love and treasure and cherish. And how can we possibly despise the poor when we know that our Lord himself became poor so that we might become rich in faith? He became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Have you become rich in faith by his poverty? The Bible says the right response to what Christ has done in his life, in his death and resurrection, is repentance and faith. Turning away from sin, changing your mind about sin, coming to him in humility and repenting and trusting in him, resting in him. 
to turn in faith to Christ means that you rely upon Him to save you. You come to know that your standing with God depends not on what you do or what you have done, but on what Christ did when He paid for sinners. And it's so easy, even for us believers, to forget this. It's so easy for us to begin thinking that it's our performance that makes God happy with us. When all along, here it is, it is Christ crucified for us and risen from the dead. Have you trusted in Christ? Are you resting in Him or in your own performance, your own work? There's an urgency in this message. Why would you put off today what will affect your life for all of eternity? Turn to Him and you will be saved. You'll be forgiven. You'll be loved. You will become truly rich for you will be an heir of the kingdom of God, which He has promised to those who love Him. And He will give you new eyes. You won't see people like you used to. Instead, you will see them as truly valuable, as created in the image of God, as those who are to be honored and respected and loved regardless of wealth or power or status. So consider, in light of who Christ is for us, in light, of cru- cr- in light of who Christ was for us and is for us, what kind of people are we going to be? What kind of church are we going to be? Will we be a people who simply reflect the value system of our culture? Going after white middle class people? Going after people seeking to reach people who make us comfortable? Because they are like us? Or will we take on the value system of our Lord who has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Consider teens and children. What does this mean for you as you go to school? Or as you meet people on your ball teams? Will you, as I did so often... Simply go along with the culture of our school and pick on and make fun of those who are lowly and despised in the eyes of the world? Or will you have the different vision of Christ who sees that no human is ordinary, but all have been made in the image of God and for His glory, and all will live for eternity? Who will we be as a church? Will we bow down and fawn over those who are wealthy and able to give back to the work God is doing here? Will we be dazzled by thinking God's kingdom is accomplished by money or power or wealth? Or will we be a church for all people? What would it mean for us to be a church for all people? What would it mean for you and your family to show hospitality to those who are weak? and lowly, and despised in the eyes of this world. Because honestly, before we can expect those sorts of people to come to our church, we will first need to welcome them into our homes and into our lives. Will we be a church for all people? A church that honors the poor? A church that celebrates our differences? A church which invites and welcomes all sorts of people into our homes and into our church family? Because if not, we'll be very surprised when we get to the kingdom of God. We are going to be so surprised regardless.
of how God has chosen the weak and the despised and the lowly of this world for his own glory. And then when we see that, it will all redound to his glory, to his power, to his majesty. I pray that we are a church which loves God's glory and reflects the character and priorities and purposes of God. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see the spiritual realities around us. That we wouldn't be taken in by the lesser glories of this world, but that we would magnify Christ and his glory. And in so doing, that our mindsets would be changed, our hearts would be changed that we would be separate, that we would be different from the culture around us in this regard, that we would value and treasure those you have made in your image, regardless of what they might look like outwardly. Lord, we pray that you would teach us what it will mean for us to be a church for all people. We pray that you would guide us in our pursuits of outreach, what it might look like for us to prioritize the lowly and despised, the poor of this world. We pray that you might be glorified in our efforts. We pray that you would convict us of sin, of areas in our own lives where we have not treasured your glory, where we have lived as citizens of this earth rather than citizens of your kingdom. Convict us of sin and Draw us again to repentance and faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.